You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Diane DeFontis awoke to a picturesque morning in her home city of New York. It was 65 degrees, it was sunny and clear, the sky was a beautiful blue, there were no clouds in sight. And when you live in New York, that's a rarity, and so she soaked it in. She walked to work and made sure to take every bit of this beautiful day in. And when she arrived at her office, she hopped in the elevator, took it all the way up to the 89th floor where her office was. She looked out over her city one more time, and then she sat down to start her workday. And the workday was alive. The office was full of the chorus of work. Phones were ringing and keyboards were typing and small, indiscernible voices rang out. It was this calming white noise of a system that was running smoothly and efficiently. Everything was going just as it always had. And then, bang! She's thrown back from her seat. She looks to the right and the conference room has caved in from the ceiling. It split the wooden table in two. And so she gathers her things together, trying to piece what it is that has happened, and then, well, the floor just above her comes down and informs her. Some employees from MetLife meet her on the way to the elevator, and they say, a plane just hit the building. We watched it happen, and her whole office exploded. Their faces were covered in ash. Their eyes were urgent and unsure. 21 years ago today, one of the greatest tragedies of our time rang loudly across this whole country. And Diane made it out that day, thanks to the incredible heroism of two people who didn't. But the event didn't stop that day. 9-11 wasn't just about 9-11. It had a ripple effect throughout our whole country. You can actually go back and read some of the articles, some of the commentaries that people wrote after this event. Everyone was trying to make sense of what it meant. Everyone was trying to make sense of how it communicated who we were, what it said about our relationships to one another, what it said about the state of the world. Everyone had thoughts and writing and reflection. It sent our whole country into this intentional uh, contemplation. And a lot of it revolved around one central question. What do we do when things fall apart? When the world is crashing down around us, when all the markers of safety and prosperity are threatened, when pain and doubt are the norm, what do we do? when things fall apart. And the way we answer that question shows us the truth of who we are. See, everybody looks great when things are comfortable and easy. Life is awesome when things are going smoothly, but when the status quo is upended, when we're in times of challenge, when the building is burning down around us, we start to see our true allegiances, our true characters, our true identities. Moments of challenge, moments of turmoil, are often the crucibles through which God reveals to us who we are and who he's calling us to be. We often learn more about ourselves in the desert than we do in the oasis. Which means that whenever we find ourselves in a world that seems like it's falling apart, that's a great time to slow down and ask ourselves some really good questions. Ask ourselves what it is that God might be doing or saying in our lives. We need to be people who ask questions like, who is God and what is God up to? Where do I see God in my life? Who am I? And what is God calling me to? What am I here for? What needs to change in my life? How do I respond to all of this happening in the world? And thankfully, we don't ask those questions on our own. 
The scriptures provide us incredible wisdom on how to address a world where things fall apart. And that's why we're starting this series. We're calling it When Things Fall Apart, and we're looking at this amazing text called Jeremiah. Jeremiah is actually the longest text by word in our library of scriptures, and it's this anthology. It's a sort of knit-together quilt of sermons, of poetry, of stories that all come from the life of a prophet named Jeremiah who lived at a time when things were falling apart in his day. Politicians in his day were corrupt and immoral. The religious institution was hypocritical and oppressive and consumed with power and money and sex. World superpowers were duking it out over and over. Sounds nothing like our world today. Things have changed a lot since Jeremiah lived, and yet they still seem precisely the same. And so as people today, whose economy seems like it's in a lot of danger, whose political world is in shambles, whose social climate is on fire, whose anxiety over the state of the world often leads us to despair, the words of Jeremiah have crucial things to say to us. They guide us as people of God, learning what it means to embody the love and grace of God in a world when things fall apart. So if you have a Bible, open it up with me. So the book of Jeremiah, this is near the end of your Old Testament, if you're flipping there. I'm going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 1. So right at the beginning, uh, we're going to have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along as well. Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 10. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of King Josiah, son of Amon of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, truly I don't know how to speak, for I'm just a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm just a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, now I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right at the start of this passage, we encounter some of the scariest things that we'll ever encounter in the Bible. Names. I say that kind of sarcastically, but I also say it with a lot of truth, because when we open our Bibles, a lot of times we come to names and places and don't really know what to do. They're hard to pronounce, they're confusing, they're distant, and so they intimidate us. I teach a class at GCU, and my students never want to be the ones who read the passages with all of these biblical names in them. It's hard for us. But every time the scriptures mention names and places like this, they're trying to give us really important information that helps us understand the themes and the message that's going to be played out over the next course of text. And so it's really important for us to understand these names, these places, to know what Jeremiah is doing, uh, what he's up to in his time. And in these few verses, we hear that his life spanned across the rule of numerous kings in the land of Judah. It starts by mentioning King Josiah. 
King Josiah, uh, became king at a young age. He was eight when he became king over Judah, which is like, man, must have been really mature to be, or, or thrust into something he wasn't ready for. And at that time, when King Josiah became king, the nation of Judah had completely deserted the way of God. God had called them to practice life and love and peace and justice, and they had deserted every part of it. They oppressed the poor and the widow and the orphan. Their religious practices were vile. There were some people who even uh, inhabited the same posture of the nations around them by sacrificing their children to foreign gods. It was a really, really ugly time. And the worst part was that they didn't even know that they were in the wrong. They didn't realize what they were doing. They were going into the temple, worshiping this God who said he came for justice and peace, and then going out and bringing injustice and pain to the world. And yet during the reign of King Josiah, there was a massive discovery that for a little blip in the nation's history changed things. There were some people uh, changing up the temple. They were uh, reconstructing it. And in their reconstruction, they discovered an old scroll. The scroll contained uh, the Torah, which are the first five books of our Old Testament. It's the law that God gave Israel, teaching them how to practice peace and justice in the world. And that law contains things like caring for the immigrant and the poor and the needy, practicing fidelity to your spouse, not coveting, not seeking revenge, etc., etc. It was this amazing text that was a glimpse into the character of God and how we might embody that character to the world. And so they brought this text to King Josiah, and he read it, and he wept. He was distraught over it because everywhere he looked in his nation, people had entirely deserted the heart of God. And so he brought about a sweeping reform in the country. He changed the religious landscape. And for a short while, it worked really well. And then Josiah was killed in battle. And the next two kings that we mentioned here, they undid everything that Josiah had done. King Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, they returned to all of the ugliness, all the corruption that had existed before Josiah's reform. And then, in King Zedekiah's reign, the entire nation of Judah was overcome by a foreign empire called Babylon. Their capital city was burned to the ground. People were ripped from their homes, brought in chains, and scattered all across the ancient Near East. And it says in this text that that's part of the justice of God, that God exposed their oppression to them. They didn't change their ways, and so he allowed oppression to come to them. That's kind of the cycle of empires in our history. They become oppressive, and then they get overtaken by another oppressor. And Jeremiah was a witness to all of this, over 40 years of ministry. In verse 10, we actually get a summary of what his ministry looked like. You might have, might have caught this. There's six verbs that are used to describe Jeremiah's ministry. It says first that he plucks up and pulls down, destroys, and overthrows. That's what God has called him to do. God is saying that through Jeremiah, he is going to proclaim the bringing down of the oppressive empire of Judah and eventually the bringing down of even Babylon. That God does not let oppression or evil have the final word. That's part of the message of Jeremiah. He will speak to those in power who are bringing about evil, and he will show them that it's going to end, that God has the last word. And that's something that we need to hear all the time, friends. Because we see the same sorts of evil in our world right now. We see wars that are ongoing. We see terrible, feudal divisions. We see all sorts of evil in our world. And we need to know that God is going to come and put an end to it. He will cease all oppression. That's part of the message of Jeremiah. It's God's justice. But we have to remember that that justice isn't about punishment or retribution either. See, sometimes when we think about God's justice and judgment, we think of some angry tyrant, right, who's showing up and bringing justice. But notice, it's not just about plucking up and tearing down here. 
There's two more verbs. To build and to plant. That's part of the message of Jeremiah. Friends, God's justice, God's overthrowing of evil, his exposing of evil, it's always towards the end of new life. Always. It's always towards the end of redemption and restoration. It's in God's justice that we actually find God's grace evident to us. He uses it to expose all of the things that are corrupt in us and in our world and to draw us back into life. When things fall apart, it's sometimes the best opportunity for us to see where we've gone wrong and where we might need to change our lives. And I've got a, a good example of this that's pretty humorous. Uh, at the start of 2020, Emily and I adopted a, a little puppy who many of you have met. He's not little anymore. He's a 70-pound behemoth. Uh, but his, his name is Wally. And at that time, he wasn't 70 pounds. And uh, Wally, when he was a puppy, just didn't make the best decisions in life. Like, just wasn't, wasn't really making the wisest decisions. And uh, one day, we noticed, after he had eaten both his meals, he threw them up almost immediately. I'm like, what's going on with this? So we call the vet. The vet's like, yeah, I should probably bring him in. We can do an x-ray, see what's going on. So they take him in. We take him in. And uh, they do an x-ray. And this is the x-ray that they did of Wally's little stomach. So that's his spine up there. That's his stomach. And you can see these little dots in the middle, right? What's going on there? Well, Wally had been going around our backyard. And we have pebbles that line the outside of our grass. And Wally, in being the puppy that he was, wanting to sharpen his teeth and chew on everything, decided these are good to eat. So I'm going to eat these. And they were blocking everything in his stomach. And the vet was like, don't worry. We can deal with this. But we're going to have to kind of uproot and tear down Wally a little bit. We're going to have to feed him a pill that will make him throw all of these up. And so for the next couple hours, Wally was puking up pebble by pebble by pebble, 15 of them in total. But they got them all out of there. The vet that day plucked up and tore down Wally. Wally felt like everything was falling apart. Right? But that's not because the vet was angry or uh, retributive. It's because the vet loved him. And we let the vet do it because we loved Wally. We wanted to see him start to eat healthier. We wanted to see his stomach work rightly. We wanted to see life and flourishing for our dog. You guys, the exposing of unhealth in us is sometimes the best thing for us. It's the most needed thing for us because we love to eat pebbles of unhealth. Selfishness, greed, pride, envy. We do that individually, and we do that in our big systems all the time. And God, in his grace, exposes those pebbles and sometimes causes them to be hurled up in us. But God does that in order to point us to the right food, in order to point us to the right things to chew on. And Jeremiah's words are written to make us do an x-ray on our own lives, to make our culture do an x-ray on itself. What are the pebbles that we're eating? What does God need to throw up in us in order to plant new life? And it's worth remembering that he's primarily doing this to religious people in his day. There is some words for the non-religious people. This is primarily to religious people that he's speaking, which means we in the church need to really take this seriously. We don't point our finger beyond the church. We do the work first for ourselves. What do we need to x-ray in our midst first? Because we have a lot of different things that Jeremiah exposes in us the ways that we've maybe sought power through political alignments in the church, the ways that we've platformed or staged unhealthy, bad character leaders for the sake of worldly prestige, the ways we've morally ostracized others. Remember, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Many churches don't feel that way. 
the hypocrisy that lives in our religious spaces. We worship Jesus, who was a poor refugee on Sundays, and then we ignore the poor refugees in our world. We live comfortably and ignore the needs of our neighbors all the time. Those are all things that we need to x-ray in our lives before we start saying that it's everybody else's fault. It starts here. The church is always eating rocks, and we're going to talk more about the specific things that Jeremiah calls out in his day and what that means for us later on in this series. But then, once we've done that as the church, once we've x-rayed our own souls, Jeremiah also teaches us to go into the world and proclaim this message of tearing down and building up, of the things that need to come down and the things that need to be replanted. We, as Christians, become prophetic people who speak into the difficult realities of our world, that evil doesn't have the final word that evil will end, that God will end all oppression, and brokenness will not win. And so we, as Christians, go into the world and grieve and mourn the brokenness of our world. Jeremiah was nicknamed the weeping prophet because he grieved all of the brokenness that existed in his time. But we do that with a sense of hope because we believe that God will plant and rebuild. We believe that God will show up and bring life again. And so when we enter the world falling apart around us, we don't wear rose-colored glasses pretending like everything's okay and we're great. But we also don't wear ash-colored glasses saying everything's terrible and living as cynical and despairing people. We hold both grief and hope in tension, and we learn to live in the world as people who both grieve and hope together. We pluck up and tear down, and we plant and build. There's a great quote from G.K. Chesterton that summarizes this well. He says, can we hate the world enough to change it and yet love it enough to think it worth changing? Can we look up at its colossal good without once feeling acquiescence? Can we look up at its colossal evil without once feeling despair? Can we, in short, be at once not only a pessimist and an optimist, but a fanatical pessimist and a fanatical optimist? So that's the overarching message of Jeremiah. That's what we're going to be unfolding in the big picture over the next few weeks. But it's important to notice as well that before Jeremiah jumps in to tearing down and building up, to plucking up and planting, God gives him a foundational message to start this passage. It's the foundation that starts everything that he does. Jeremiah is told that he is called by God. It's an essential foundation to do any of this work. And it's the same foundation that God gives us to live in a broken world. Friends, every single one of you is called by God. Every one of you. God is at work bringing peace and justice and love, redemption and restoration, all things, and he's calling every single one of you to participate with him in that work. And so we need to deeply understand the call of God. Before we go into the world, we need to deeply understand what God is leading us into as Christians. There's three things I think we can learn about the calling of God that's present in Jeremiah's passage that applies to us today. First, we learn that God's calling comes amidst a place. Second, that it comes to us personally, and third, that it comes for a purpose. It comes amidst a place, it comes to us personally, and it comes for a purpose. So first, amidst a place. Those intimidating names and places, they're there to locate this uh, for us socially and historically, but they're also there to communicate a crucial theological reality. Jeremiah, you guys, was a real dude. He lived a real life and real history. He really sweat, he really cried, he really bled, he really died. He walked this earth, and he really experienced the work of God in his time and his place. Guys, the redemptive and restorative work of God in the world is not some distant, high-minded spiritual notion, and it's not escapism. 
The plan of God's redemption gets right into our midst, into the dirt, into the grime, into the blood, into the tears, into the laughs. God works in real time, in real places, with real everyday people, which means our calling to faith in God is never an individualized, spiritualized thing that we just kind of hoard to ourselves. It's never just in feelings we cultivate together here in this space. Feelings aren't necessarily a bad thing, but that's not where the start and end of our faith is. We desperately need to remember that truth, especially in an American religious culture that's so often built on personal comfort and feeling, so often built on individualism. Friends, if our faith in God leads us further towards comfortable, individualized lives and away from the hurting world around us, that's a false faith. If our faith in God leads us further towards comfortable, individualized lives and away from the hurting world around us, it is a false faith. And that means that every song we sing in here should springboard us to service out there. Every prayer we pray in here should help us prioritize the poor out there. Every gathering here should equip us to engage our neighbors well out there. Faith in God means believing that every part of our lives is woven together in this cosmic story of healing and life. It means believing that every morning we wake up, as Stephen just sung for us, every morning we wake up and we have breath in our lungs, we can say, good morning, Jesus, what do you have for me? Every day we enter a stage of history that's already been set by God and we're invited to partner with him in what he's doing. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what's the stage that God has set for us? And that is something that we answer collectively, right? We at Midtown say the stage is here in Central Phoenix. But each of you have your own context as well. What's the stage that God is setting for you? Is it your neighborhood, your workplace, your kids, your neighbors, your friends, your family? What's the stage that God has set for you to participate in bringing life to the world? So God's calling always comes amidst a place, but it doesn't stop there. It also comes to each of us personally. Notice, when did God's call come to Jeremiah in the course of his life? The text. Did you catch it? It was before he was formed in the womb, before he was ever born. It actually didn't come in his life at all. Jeremiah existed in the mind of God before he ever existed in the material world. You guys, before we knew ourselves, God knew us. Before we knew ourselves, God knew us. Before we attempted to form meaning or purpose or identity with our lives, God had already called us to a distinct and powerful, eternally significant identity. The story started before we got here, and it's going to continue after we're gone. Which means the truth of who we are is not ours to define. The truth of who we are is not ours to discover. The truth of who we are is not someone else's to tell us. The truth of who we are has been established by God. We are formed to love God and love others. That's our identity. And everything we do comes out of that personal realization. And we need to hear that because... Man, does it free us from the, the hurry of our lives spent constantly trying to find our identity and our purpose. The world out there is constantly telling us to run around and define ourselves based on what they tell us. You're a consumer, so live like a consumer. You're a producer, so live like a producer. You're a winner, so live like a winner. You're a loser, so live like a loser. You're an outcast. You're defined by the wealth or career or age or health or accomplishments or failures of your life. The whole world is telling us that we are defined by such things. And when we buy into those notions, we become people who are constantly rushing around, anxiously looking for anywhere to find our identity, anxiously looking for anywhere to find our significance in life and purpose. We devote all our time to this, and we carry 
a burden of expectation that leaves us exhausted all the time. And Jeremiah, by the way, does the same thing. He gets it. His response to God's call is, I can't do this. I'm only a youth. I'm only a boy, and boys can't, like, I, I am not qualified for this. Right? He's allowing the identity that the world has given him to define his response to God's call. Friends, this is a message that every person in here needs to hear and every person outside this room needs to hear. Your identity is not dependent on how much your parents like or dislike you. Your identity is not dependent on your degree or profession. Your identity is not dependent on your salary. Your identity is not dependent on your shiny virtues or your hidden sins. God wants every single one of you to know your identity is the beloved son or daughter of God called to partner with him in bringing life and flourishing to all things. And that identity can't be changed. That's the identity that God has given you before you were formed in your mother's womb. You're designed to participate with God in the restorative work that he's doing. And the craziest part of that is that in history, you have a role that only you can fill. You have a role that no one else in the world can fill. God formed you uniquely in a specific time with specific gifts so that you could participate with him as you. I have no desire in here to make uh, people who look like Clint. I have no desire in here to make people who look like Stephen, even though Stephen's amazing. I have a desire to help each of you, and we have a desire as a community to help each of ourselves identify what God has called us uniquely to in our lives and to live out of that identity. And that means that there's not actually a question that we have to ask about who we are. We don't have to go out there and discover it. We just have to listen to what God says about us and allow God to guide us. Will we become the people who we already are? Will we become the people who we already are in God? Or will we reject the God who calls us in favor of what the world says about us or what we want to say about ourselves? So that's the second thing about the calling of God. It comes to us personally. The third, friends, it comes for a purpose. There's a word that's used to describe Jeremiah's call here. It's the word appointed. And uh, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite scholars and theologians, brings this out. He says that the word that's used, the verb that's used for appointed there, could be also translated given. That uh, God is saying to Jeremiah that he's been given away to communicate the message of God to the world. You guys, the calling of God is always outward facing. Always. It starts here. We hear it here, but it sends us out purpose of God's call in our lives is never simply for us. It's for the sake of the world. And yet so often we come up with excuses not to listen to that call. We come up with excuses to not give ourselves away because it feels more natural to us to kind of hoard our lives. And so we hold on to our bank accounts. We hold on to our political ideologies. We hold on to our comfortable careers. We hold on to unhealthy relationships or practices. We hoard our lives because we think if we give them away, then we won't have as much, right? We think that the more we can get for ourselves, the more we have, the more life we can obtain, and that's precisely the opposite of how life works. We're made for the purpose of giving, and every time we fail to give, every time we hoard ourselves more, we're actually preventing ourselves, blocking ourselves from true life. There's a great theologian named Henry Nouwen who talks about this. In his book, Life of the Beloved, he says, our humanity comes to its fullest bloom in giving. We become beautiful people when we give whatever we can give. A smile, a handshake, a kiss, an embrace, a word of love, a present, a part of our life, all of our life. 
And that's the precise message that Jesus speaks to every single one of us, friends. Remember his words to the disciples. If anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, whoever wants to hoard their life and get it for themselves will lose it. But whoever loses their life, whoever gives it away for my sake, will find it. The truest version of who we are, the truest version of who God has called us to be, always comes when we give ourselves away and when we expand our capacity to give. So what are you holding on to? What are you hoarding in your life right now? What might God be calling you to give away? What might he be appointing you to? You guys, God has called each and every one of us in this room. He's called us amidst a place. He's called to us personally, and he's called for a purpose. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that if we want true, lasting, real, eternal life, it comes in hearing the calling of God and embodying it in the place, in the personal way that we've been called, and for the purpose of giving ourselves away. So what are we going to do about it? Will we go to the place that he's placed us? Will we proclaim his story of redemption and restoration there? And will we remember our identity rooted in him and not in anything else or anyone else? Will we give ourselves to God and to others so that all people might participate in the flourishing that God has designed for us? He promises that the truest version is waiting for us when we do that. God has called. Will we answer? Let's pray.